Well, turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 20 and to verses 8 to 11, page 73, if you're using the church Bible. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. We're continuing in our studies in the Ten Commandments, and we come this evening to the fourth commandment, Exodus 20 and verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." The fourth commandment is the longest of the Ten Commandments, and it is one of only two positive commands. It is also the most controversial of the Ten Commandments. It is and has been for a long time now being attacked from the secular world around us. Uh, it's really almost indistinguishable now in many respects from the other six days of the week, thanks to increased Sabbath trading. Uh, when I was a boy, uh, hardly any shops at all were open on the Lord's Day. That's completely changed now. It's a day in the world for leisure and for sport and for holidaying and for travel. And there are quite a number now of members of the Reformed Presbyterian Church who have had to sacrifice promising careers in professional sport because all the tournaments were held on the Lord's Day, uh, or at least uh, some of them were held on the Lord's Day. For many years, our children have found it hard increasingly difficult to be involved in weekend activities at school because the Sabbath day is simply disregarded. Uh, that has been the trend, and of course it's only going to get worse. But that's not really surprising. We expect that from the world, especially as it casts off any last traces of respect for the Christian values and ethos that has shaped uh, our nation in the past. But far more worrying is the growing and probably now the majority position, the neglect of the Sabbath day by the evangelical church. A new generation of Christians has grown up challenging the 2,000-year understanding of the first day of the week as the Christian Sabbath. 
And perhaps one of the most uh, pivotal moments in that change was the publication of a very influential, intelligent book in 1982, edited by Don Carson, uh, one of the most outstanding theologians and leaders uh, of our day, uh, a book entitled From Sabbath to Lord's Day. And that book attacks the traditional practice, uh, our view of the Sabbath day, and has probably done more to contribute in evangelical circles, at least, to the decline in Sabbath observance uh, than anything else. Uh, the observance of the Sabbath day is, well, has been for some time, uh, become a distinctive principle almost of the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Some churches do hold to the Christian Sabbath in theory. Uh, churches that subscribe the Westminster Confession of Faith, for example, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland and others. Uh, and yet in practice, uh, increasingly, vanishingly few evangelicals uh, hold to this teaching. And so for these reasons, it's important for us to know what we believe uh, about the Sabbath day. This sermon uh, is really a little bit more of a lecture than a sermon, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, it lays the groundwork for uh, next Sabbath morning's sermon, uh, which will be much more of a sermon on the Lord's Day. But uh, I do think that this is uh, important for us to, to grapple with and to understand. So, uh, two things that I want us to think about this evening. First of all, the Sabbath attacked and then secondly, the Sabbath defended. So first of all, the Sabbath attacked. What, what's all the fuss about? Surely the fourth commandment is perfectly clear. Keep the Sabbath holy. Don't do any work on the Sabbath. This is a special day that is reserved for worship a day on which no unnecessary work is to be done. We, we put aside our ordinary, legitimate leisure pursuits, and we focus on the Lord. The New Testament church changed the Sabbath day from the seventh day of the week, Saturday, to the first day of the week, Sunday, to uh, commemorate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But isn't the continuing obligation to keep the Sabbath day plain enough for the youngest child here to grasp and understand? Why would we take one of the Ten Commandments that were written on tablets of stone, symbolizing their permanence with the very finger of God, why would we take one of those Ten Commandments out of the context of all the others and try to keep the other nine. Surely that is a completely arbitrary thing to do. What reasons could any honest reader of Scripture have for abolishing the Sabbath commandment? Well, let me set out the case against the traditional Sabbath and then the case for the traditional Sabbath. And there are many arguments, but I want to just uh, mention the four main lines of argument uh, 
that are offered as to why we don't need to keep the Sabbath holy in the way that Israel was commanded to do. And the first argument is that the Sabbath was just for the Jews. They say that the Sabbath was just for the Jews. This commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy was given here at Mount Sinai when Israel was constituted as a nation. That's when it was given. Those are the people to whom it was given. It was given to the Jews. If it was so vital for all of mankind, then why is there no mention of it before Sinai? We don't read anything about the patriarchs keeping the Sabbath. There's no command to them to honor the Lord's day. In fact, in Exodus 31, verses 16 and 17, it says that the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant that was made at Sinai. It's a sign of the Sinai covenant. So clearly then, it's argued, the Sabbath is not for all people in all times. It's just for the Jews. It's for the the Sinai covenant people. It's just for a limited temporary period, and it has no relevance, it has no application to us today. In Genesis chapter 2, yes, it's true, we're told that God rested on the seventh day, but there's no commandment there to keep the seventh day holy or special in any way. The commandment doesn't come at creation. It comes at Sinai. And that reinforces the idea that this is not something that was laid down as part of creation. It's not hardwired into creation. It's not applicable to all men at all times. It's not like marriage. It's not like work. Uh, This is something that was just for the Jews. It was brought in at Sinai, not before and it's not intended to be permanent. So that's the first argument. The second argument is that the Lord Jesus didn't endorse the fourth commandment. He endorsed all the others, but not the fourth. In fact, if anything, the Lord Jesus downgraded the importance of the Sabbath. He never gave any command to keep the day holy, And he encouraged people to break away from the endless lists of rules about the Sabbath. So that's the second argument, that the Lord Jesus didn't endorse the fourth commandment. And then the third argument is that the Apostle Paul seems to specifically abolish Sabbath-keeping in a number of places, not just Uh, one place or two places, but in several places. He urges believers, it seems, not to be enslaved by Sabbath-keeping. Romans 14, verse 5, for example. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It doesn't matter. Keep it holy, don't keep it holy. As long as you're convinced in your own mind, it doesn't matter. Galatians 4, 9 and 10. But now, you, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, 
how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. This is slavery, Paul says. This is an example of being enslaved by weak and miserable principles, observing special days. Get over that. That's, that's, that shouldn't be characteristic of a Christian. Or Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So it's argued, Paul says there, that the Sabbath is a shadow of things that were to come. Don't let anybody judge you if you keep it or don't keep it. It doesn't matter. So that's the third argument. Paul seems to abolish Sabbath-keeping. And then the fourth and final argument that we're going to look at this evening is a very pious-sounding argument. Christians say, surely we are to keep every day holy to God. In fact, this is a little bit like the argument that says that all of life is worship. And so this idea that there's anything special about what we do when we come together uh, and to talk about coming to worship God on the Lord's day with his people, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. All of life is worship. Uh, all of, it's like saying that you come to church to breathe. Uh, you, all of life is breathing. You breathe all the time. You don't stop breathing when you come to church. You don't hold your breath the rest of the week and then you come into church to breathe and then go out and hold your breath again. Uh, all of life is worship. Uh, and, and it's a little bit like that with regard to the Sabbath day. Every day is holy to the Lord. Why would we make one day special? Doesn't Christ rule over all of life? Why would we make these kinds of distinctions? Surely Christians should think of every day as the Lord's day. So those are the main arguments that are put forward against Sabbath observance. And we need to uh, note that they are held, these arguments, by sincere, godly, Bible-believing evangelical brothers and sisters in Christ who genuinely do want to honor God's Word. Uh, so we're not making any, uh, casting any aspersions at all on the sincerity of their faith. Uh, we're not being judgmental and saying these people are not Christians or anything like that. But sincere, godly Christians can still be wrong and it's our belief in the Reformed Presbyterian Church that this understanding of the Sabbath is wrong, that it is misguided. The question is, why? How do we respond to these arguments? And so that brings us to the Sabbath defended. The Sabbath defended. What is our response to each of those four arguments? Well, first of all, the Sabbath was just for Jews. That's the argument that is made. Uh, is this day purely a Jewish ordinance? Is it true that it came into existence at Sinai and that it was unheard of before that? Well, there are several things to say in response to that. First of all, 
uh, that just simply isn't true. Uh, it's not strictly true. Uh, and we know that because we've been going right through the early chapters of Exodus. And so you remember perhaps Exodus chapter 16, uh, the, the chapter all about the manna in the wilderness. Uh, before the law was given at Sinai, in other words, the law is given in chapter 20, but months before this, in chapter 16, the Israelites were ordered by the Lord to collect twice as much manna on the sixth day and none at all on the seventh day. Verse 23 of Exodus 16, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. But then some people didn't listen to that and they went out on the Sabbath, the seventh day, and they went looking for manna. And it says, The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. So that passage assumes that the Sabbath day is to be observed and that the people were familiar with this concept of the seventh day as a day of rest. They haven't been given the commandments yet. The law hasn't been given. They haven't entered into covenant with God yet. And yet there seems to be this understanding that the seventh day is a day of rest. And that's something that we often find actually uh, all through the book of Genesis. Uh, some practice is being carried out even though no explicit commandment about it has been recorded. Uh, we assume that more information is given to the people at the time and that it is later spelt out and then codified in the law. But just because there's no explicit commandment recorded doesn't mean that no explicit commandment was given. Uh, an example of that is Cain and Abel bringing sacrifice. They know to bring sacrifice to the Lord. And it seems that Cain is doing it wrong and Abel is doing it right. Uh, now, there's no command that's been given. You, you'll look in vain in Genesis chapter 4 for any kind of command from God about what kind of sacrifice should be given or even that sacrifice should be given. And yet they're doing it. It's going to be spelt out later in the law, we're going to find an awful lot said about what sacrifices should be given and, and how and so on and when and by whom. But it seems to be practiced even before the commandment is explicitly recorded. Abraham and Jacob both pay tithes. They're both tithing, even though there's nothing at all said about tithing until much later when the law is given at Sinai and it's all written down. So that's one thing to say. Uh, the Sabbath commandment does seem to have been in existence and known by the Jews before Sinai. This is not just something that is given at Sinai. 
it's true, another thing to say about this, it's true that the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant uh, with Israel at Sinai. Uh, it says that in Exodus 31. The Sabbath is the sign of the Sinai covenant. That's quite true. But God usually took things that were already in existence and made them to be signs. Uh, he, he, he made the rainbow, you remember, the sign of the covenant with Noah. There were already rainbows. There had been rainbows for hundreds and hundreds of years. Unless we take the view that there were no rainbows until God created a rainbow for the first time after the flood. Uh, no, presumably there had been rainbows for hundreds of years before the flood. The rainbow already existed, but God takes that thing that already exists and he fills it with new meaning and makes it into a sign of the covenant. Same with circumcision. Circumcision was something that was already in existence. It was practiced by other nations. But God takes this thing that was practiced by other nations and he says to Abraham, this is going to be the sign of my covenant with you. And this is what it's going to mean for you. Yes, these other nations may practice it, and this is what they may think it means to them, but this is what it means for you. God takes things that are already in existence and fills them with new meaning and significance. And that seems to be what is happening here with the Sabbath. The Sabbath already exists. It's not that God creates the Sabbath day at Sinai. It has existed since the beginning of creation. But now God takes that special day of rest and he gives it a special significance for the Jews. It's to remind them of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It's to remind them of the covenant at Sinai. Now, that part, that aspect of the Sabbath, what it signified that was limited. That was temporary. That was just for Old Testament Israel. It is a reminder for the Israelites. It is a reminder for the Jews of deliverance from slavery in Egypt and the covenant at Sinai. Absolutely. What it signified is temporary. But the Sabbath itself, there's nothing limited. There's nothing temporary about the day itself. And when you come into the New Testament, it's not that the Sabbath is abolished. Rather, what it represents, what it signifies, changes. So that instead of being a reminder of redemption from Egypt, it serves now in the New Testament as a weekly reminder of our redemption from slavery to sin and our redemption in Christ and of the new life of his resurrection doesn't mean that we get rid of the Sabbath and stop remembering the Sabbath day. It's just that what it signifies has changed in the New Testament. And then, yes, it's true that there is no explicit command to keep the Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2. But it's very hard to imagine Adam and Eve ignoring this seventh day that God had specifically made holy, that he has set apart to be special and different. Because if nobody recognizes it as special, if nobody treats it as different, then it's very hard to see in what 
since it is special if everybody just ignores it and carries on as business as usual. And you simply can't avoid the fact that the fourth commandment ties the Sabbath day to creation. Look again at Exodus 20, verse 11. It says, For in six days the Lord made, the heaven, made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The, the commandment ties the Sabbath day to creation. It's not saying this is just something that we're doing now at Sinai. This is just for the Jews. It links it back to creation and to what God did when he rested on the seventh day. The seventh day may not be called the Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2, but it is called the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. This is part of God's creation blueprint. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for the Jews. It's for every human being. So those are some of the things that we need to say uh, in response to this argument that the Sabbath is just for Jews, that it is a purely Jewish ordinance, that it just appears at the Sinai Covenant, and it's not heard of before that, and therefore has no relevance to us as New Testament Christians. Then the second argument that we looked at, the, the example of Christ, uh, it said that Jesus didn't endorse the fourth commandment. Well, is that the case? Did Jesus show contempt for the Sabbath? And did he deliberately undermine it? That is a serious misunderstanding, I think, of the Lord's attitude to the Sabbath. Because what Jesus is doing in the New Testament is not attacking the Sabbath, but he is attacking the dense layers of legalistic traditions that had been added by human beings to God's commandment about the Sabbath. They're smothering the life out of the Sabbath. And Jesus comes to rescue the Sabbath from all of those legalistic rules. Imagine uh, a beautiful park that has been gifted by a philanthropist, very wealthy man, has all this land that he owns in the middle of a busy city, and he decides that he's going to give it to the people of the city so that they can enjoy it. Uh, he, he knows that they live in, in high-rise apartments, that they don't have gardens, uh, they don't have cars to be able to escape to the countryside. And so he gives them this beautiful park. He's had it landscaped uh, by the best landscape designers that money can buy. It's just beautiful. Streams and uh, ponds and trees and uh, it's just it's just the most beautiful place of refuge and peace and it's for everybody in the city to enjoy but then over the years the council of the city decide that the local riffraff coming in are spoiling the park 
with their lower class picnics and football games. And so they decide to pass a whole raft of rules. And they put up endless signs all around the park enforcing these rules. Keep off the grass. No ball games. No food. No drink. No loud music. No barbecues. None of these things are allowed. And more than that, then, they, they, they pay a whole army of workers, wardens, who are going to go round uh, patrolling the park. And they're going to catch anybody who breaks any of these laws, and they're going to fine them. And so this, this beautiful park, this lovely paradise, which is meant to be a place where people can come and rest and relax and enjoy themselves and recharge their batteries... It, it becomes a, a horrible, horrible place. People are terrified to go anywhere near it. And that's exactly what generations of Pharisees had done to the Sabbath. They'd taken this one beautiful, liberating command about this wonderful day that God had given for people to rest and to worship. And they have added hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of their own petty little detailed rules and regulations to God's original simple command. So that instead of being a delight, the Sabbath becomes an intolerable burden for people. So that instead of anticipating this day with joy, they dread it. And they would wake up in the morning and break out into a sweat and say to themselves, how many ways am I going to break the Sabbath and desecrate God's holy day this week? And you know very well, uh, many of you, some of these silly laws that were added by the Pharisees. You could lift a chair across an earthen floor on the Sabbath day, but you weren't allowed to drag it because if you drag it, you might plow a furrow in the ground, and that would be plowing, and that would be work. You could eat an egg that was laid by a hen raised for eating. If you're going to eat the hen, then you can eat the egg that it lays on the Sabbath day, because egg laying is not her daily work. <coughs> but you weren't allowed to eat an egg that came from a hen that was used for eggs because that was her daily work. And so if she lays an egg on the Sabbath, well then she's working, and you can't eat that egg. You were allowed to dip a radish in salt, but not for too long. There was a, a, a maximum number of seconds that you could dip the radish into salt, because if you left it in too long, you were pickling it, and that was work. You could throw something in the air and catch it with the same hand, but if you throw it in the air and catch it with the other hand, for some reason, that was regarded as work. And so that was forbidden. I wish I could say that I'm making these things up, but these, these things come straight out of the rabbinic writings. It is utterly ridiculous. They were totally missing the point of the Sabbath day. And what Jesus does in the New Testament is he comes to give the park back to the people. He doesn't come to get rid of the park. 
He doesn't say, let's demolish it and build some more high-rise apartments because we don't need the park anymore. No, he, he comes, as it were, to say, we need this park more than we've ever needed it. But let's open it up and let's use it the way that it's meant to be used. He strips away the layers and layers of legalism that have built up over the Sabbath so that the Sabbath can at last be seen again for what it was meant to be, a day of blessing a day of joy, a day to benefit all mankind. Jesus comes and he abolishes the Pharisees' commandments about the day. He doesn't abolish the Lord's command itself. He corrects the abuses of the day, but there's nothing wrong with the day itself. All Jesus does is reaffirm the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was created for man not man for the Sabbath. And then the third argument that Paul gets rid of Sabbath keeping. What do we say about that? At first glance, it does look as though Paul is doing away with any need for Sabbath keeping, doesn't it? Those verses that I read do seem to sound like it doesn't matter. If you think you should keep the Sabbath, you keep the Sabbath, that's fine. Uh, we're not going to keep the Sabbath, and that's fine too. But that's not at all what these verses are teaching. The issue that Paul is dealing with is Judaism. Some Jewish Christians were insisting that Gentile Christians ought to keep all the rituals and all the rules of Old Testament Judaism. They ought to eat kosher food. They ought to adhere to ceremonial washings. They ought to keep all the various feasts and so on. And Paul is saying in these verses, no, all these things have been fulfilled in Christ. The issue has nothing to do with the Sabbath day. It is to do with Judaism. And so in, in Romans 14 verse 5 and in that uh, verse from Galatians 4 that I mentioned, Paul doesn't actually even mention the Sabbath. He's talking about Jewish feast days that some Jewish Christians wanted to keep on celebrating. They wanted to keep on having the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Pentecost and the Passover. And that's the, those are the days that Paul is talking about. And he wants to make sure that no one is imposing secondary issues on other people in the church. Well, what about Colossians 2 verse 16? The ESV says, let no one pass judgment on you with regard to a Sabbath. Well, the word Sabbath there uh, is actually plural in the original. It's not singular the way that the ESV translates it. What it literally says is, let no one pass judgment on you with regard to Sabbaths. It's not a reference, in other words, to the weekly Sabbath day which is rooted in creation. Rather, these Sabbaths are explained by the other words in the verse. Religious festivals and new moon celebrations. In other words, it's another reference to Jewish feasts. The Jews called all these feasts Sabbaths, Pentecost, unleavened bread. These were all Sabbaths. And Paul says these were shadows of the thing that was to come in Christ. They're pointing forwards to the Lord Jesus. And now we don't need to keep these 
Sabbaths, these special festivals, because we're on this side of the cross and the resurrection. But the weekly Sabbath is different. Paul's not talking about the weekly Sabbath. That was never canceled. That was never fulfilled by Christ because it's a creation ordinance. And it's pointing forwards not to the work of Christ on the cross, but to the eternal rest of heaven. The Sabbath won't be abolished until we get to heaven, which is our eternal Sabbath. And then that last argument, which sounds very plausible and very pious, we should keep every day special. That's actually the worst argument of all. It's the one that has least to commend it. Because if we say that, then we're making ourselves wiser than God, aren't we? Because it was his idea to keep one day in seven special. He knew that it's not good to keep every day the same, to treat every day as equal. In our weakness, in our frailty, he knew that it was good for us to have one day of rest a week to remember the Lord. Of course we live every day to God, but he is the one who says one day in seven is special. So these arguments, I think, don't need to unsettle us. They shouldn't shift us from the historic position of the church uh, as far as the Sabbath is concerned. But I do worry that when Christians hear these arguments, they use them as an excuse to do what they already want to do in their hearts. Uh, I fear that some Christians are glad to have a pretext to abolish the Sabbath because they really don't want to keep the Sabbath anyway. And I worry that they have no interest in the Lord's day because they have very little interest in the Lord. Their love for God is weak and their devotion to Him is cold. And so the thought of spending a whole day giving God a whole day a week to worship and to fellowship with His people, that just terrifies them. And perhaps it's because they depend too much on the world for their happiness and their satisfaction and their fulfillment. They can't do without the world. They need their fix of the world. It's like taking a phone away from a teenager or younger or older, a person who is addicted to their phone. You take their phone away for a whole day, and they're, they're appalled. I can't do without it. I need, I need my phone. I need to check and see if I have any messages. I need to, to see if anybody needs a post to be liked. Uh, I need to see if they're liking my post. Uh, and, and there are Christians who are a bit like that with, when it comes to the world. Can't do without it for a whole day. I need, I need the world because that's what they love more than the Lord. I don't understand Christians who want to get rid of the Sabbath. Surely this is something that any Christian should find torturously hard to contemplate. You can go off and you can spend this day doing whatever you want. It's just like any other day. You can go to work if you want. You can go to the restaurant. You can go to the beach and you can play games all day. And you don't need to worry about getting back for church. Surely there's something wrong with us 
if, if, if that appeals to us in any way. Even if we didn't have to keep the Sabbath in the way that we do, surely healthy Christians should want to spend the day like this just the same. Is it possible to think of a better way of spending this day? It's for our good, and it can only bring us spiritual blessing. And God willing, we'll think of that next Lord's Day morning when we think about the purpose of the Lord's Day. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know us because you made us, and you remember that we are dust in your grace and in your kindness. And we thank you, Lord God, that knowing us as you do, you have so kindly given to us this day that we so desperately need, a day for rest and a day for worship. We thank you that this is not just something that was given to the Jews for a limited time. We thank you that it was hardwired into creation itself, something that is needed by every man and every woman. And we pray, Lord God, that as Christians we will be all the more convinced of this in our minds as a result of these things that we have thought about together this evening. We pray that we will not be swayed uh, in theory or in practice from the commitment that we have made as Reformed Presbyterians to the Sabbath day. We pray that you will help us to delight in it and to call the Lord's holy day honorable. We pray that you will help us to guard against adding legalistic rules of our own uh, which uh, smother the, the, the purpose of this day. And we pray that we will keep it holy as you call us to. And we pray that we would know the blessing that comes from keeping your day holy. We pray too, Father, for those who do not delight in your day because they do not delight in you. And we pray that you would give them, above all else, uh, a love for you and so a love for your day and for all the things of God. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.